0: Hey and welcome to the hashtag Angels Podcast, where we bring you conversations about the latest tech trends with the people inventing and shaping them. I'm Jessica
1: Varelli, and this week I'm joined by my co-host Jana Measuresmith. So you mentioned that you think NFTs are on phase two. I think I think Taco Bell showed up a few weeks ago.
2: Taco <laughs> Bell showed up, yeah.
1: And we sit down with Avichal Garg.
2: Literally, you have custody. And so one day a USB key will show up and it has a couple million dollars on it. Like what do you do with that? Do you, do you give that to your associate and they just keep it at home? Or like, how? Do, like, what do you even do with that, right?
0: Avichal is the co-founder of Electric Capital, a crypto hedge fund. So today we're talking all things crypto. He started his career at Google, had a tour of duty at Facebook after his company Spool was acquired, worked with startups at YC and jumped full-time into crypto in early 2018. A quick disclosure, Jan and I are both investors in electric, and nothing in this episode is investment advice. All right, let's jump in. We've known each other, I don't know, seven or eight years? Ten years now. Ten, when you were doing Spool?
2: Yeah, it was like 2011. It's a long time.
0: So just for like a little bit of background, Avichal and I met, I was leading many of our acquisitions at Twitter, and Avichal was uh, running a startup called Spool. And I was always on the front lines with founders, getting to know them, figuring out what they're working on, if there might be a path for them to join us at Twitter. And in this case, you ended up going to Facebook. But I remember at the very end of the process, I actually remember this sort of vividly. I think it was in my kitchen when I took your phone call. But uh, you had said something like, we're going to cross paths again. like Because you you really get to know people in that kind of intense couple months where you're just talking through... What you want for your company, what you want for your next professional endeavor, and um, and we have in fact continued to intersect ever since.
2: It is it is it's funny. Like an acquisition process is a very intimate experience. You kind of have to like for it to work, you kind of have to put yourself out there. And the other the other like because if you're not honest through the process, you're just going to end up in the wrong place. And everybody at a certain point in the process, you're like, okay, I can't you can't put on airs about it. You're just like, I have to be really honest about what I actually want. And so yeah, if like if that works, then. You end up making some friends too, which is kind of kind of funny to think about that that it's like a backwards way to make friends, but it is actually like a very good it's a good filter too because you have to be so honest. Yeah.
1: If you had ended up at Twitter, what's the like big thing you would have launched that still hasn't been launched yet?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. You know what I I, I wish Twitter had done. I kind of feel like Telegram is the product that Twitter should have built for DMs. It's just like public handles. You can find anybody. Group chat is really good, and and it's it the graph carries over really well too. Like the crypto Twitter graph carries over into crypto Telegram really cleanly. Uh, or it could have you know it could have evolved into something like Discord if they sort of hit the right communities. Um, but I think in that era, I mean like the 2012 to 2015 era, they they I think they could have gotten that off because that was also like when WhatsApp was happening. That's when you know mobile messengers were really kind of having a second go, and so that that always to me felt like a really big opportunity that Twitter never quite pulled the trigger on.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so much in group messaging that feels like it is, I mean, it's obviously a part of the product, but it's never been a like first-party experience. Um, yeah. But just to, to bring it full circle, so after Spool, you ended up at Facebook, um, started your career much earlier at Google, and uh, eventually left and started a crypto hedge fund, yeah. Electric Capital, which um, for full disclosure, Jan and I are both investors in. But one of the reasons I remember writing that check was- One, as an investor, I always just bet on the smartest people and most ambitious creative people I've come across in my life when they're doing something new. But for crypto in particular, I remember feeling like this was several years ago, four or five years ago. You'll you'll give us the timeline. But I remember feeling like there is this incredible momentum and excitement amongst a technical community that wants to go work in this space. I was following like Bitcoin and Coinbase and some of the more mainstream projects, but I felt like as an investor, it was literally impossible for me to grasp the scope of things going on and to keep pace. And so it was, um, I don't do this often, but it's one of the times that I thought investing in a fund was actually a great way to get exposure. Um, And I also just wanted to learn. And so that's, we've intersected in a, in a bunch of different ways, um, but that's, that's, um, that's kind of what brings us to today's conversation because we're dying to just talk a little bit more about crypto, about what's going on. Um, and so we've got a bunch of specific questions, but maybe I'll just start with what is electric capital and yeah. why did you choose to spend this chapter of your career totally focused on crypto?
2: Yeah, both really good questions. Um, so so yeah, the backstory is um, you know, we left Facebook. We were thinking about what to do. Um, I was hanging out mostly at Y Combinator as a, as a visiting partner there for like 18 months and, and just sort of trying to sort out what to do. And my um, co-founder from from my previous startup, uh, Curtis, Curtis and I were thinking, we were just sort of riffing on ideas. And, and honestly, we thought we would start another company. That's kind of what we had as sort of as plan A um and so we, we were looking at different spaces and, and we'd been hobbyists in crypto for a while so curtis had been doing some eth and monero mining we'd actually mined some bitcoin back in like 2011 days for a little bit and then properly sold it all when it went to like 800 because we thought it was crazy <laughs> <laughs> um and uh we're like, this is bananas this is never gonna work we should sell
0: do you ever run the numbers on like what it would have been probably too pain. it's too painful to look
2: yeah it's it's really yeah it's, it's depressing um but uh, but it's funny. It's, I mean, we should, we'll come back to this, I'm sure. But it is it's funny because liquidity people think of as a gift, but it's also a curse, right? It's actually when you're up 10x or 20x on an investment as a VC, the temptation is to take some of, it, some of it off. But but really, the biggest returns are the ones where it just keeps compounding and keeps compounding for 10 years. And so illiquidity makes that really easy. Like if you can't sell, then you just can't sell. It's not even an option. But at any point, if you can sell. It's just, it just requires a little. It's a different kind of discipline to not sell. Um, uh, but um, so anyway, we'd been hobbyists for a long time, and and um, had been tracking the space, and it always just felt um, it felt too early. And then when we came back to it in 2016, end of 2016, um, early 2017, um, we were just having a lot of fun. We we were in these chat rooms, and it reminded us we were a little too young to participate in sort of Internet 1.0, and we kind of caught Internet 2.0. Um, and it reminded us of Internet 1.0 again, where it was just so raw. And we hadn't felt that rawness in over a decade, like in a lot of the stuff that we have done. Like the Internet had become really mainstream. Mobile had made it even more mainstream and global. Um, but crypto felt raw, and it still feels raw, in a way that the Internet hasn't, I think, in a long time. And I'll give you, you know, the analogy I always use is sort of if you threw a dinner party of the people who are in a, in a space... I think it's a really useful exercise because it, it gives you this gut check of of who's in the space and how weird is it. And <laughs> with crypto, it's, it really is like if you threw a dinner party and what you had were uh, a bunch of drug dealers and a bunch of adult film stars and a bunch of college professors and college kids and VCs um, and entrepreneurs all over the world um, and some regulators from the SEC show up and you're like, this is the dinner party, that would be a very strange dinner party, right? Like that in, in real life that would not happen. Um, and really the last time that happened was the internet, the, that the college professors and the college kids and the SEC and the Wall Street people and the VCs and the adult film stars and the drug dealers all showed up in one place. Um, and I think sometimes people see the, those kinds of actors um, and they're like, oh, there's sketchiness here or, or this is shady or there's you know, black market or all this kind of stuff. And they run away from it. And I think that's totally wrong. I think that's backwards. I think you should run towards that. Because when when all of these people that exist on the fringe see some value, something is going on. Like There's some underlying utility that they're all being pulled towards out of necessity. Um, And so we looked at that and said, oh, this is really interesting. This reminds us of the early internet. Let's just go play here and let's see what happens. And and we basically, in 2017, were doing all of the things you're not supposed to do on the internet. Uh, And we obviously don't do this with our investors' money now, but literally it was like you would go into a chat room, there was some handle on the other side, and they would say, hey, if you wire me, you know, X thousand dollars right now, I'll send you back these tokens and maybe the tokens are worth something. And you kind of had to trust, there was like no legal agreements, there were no, you know, it was all sort of a handshake with this person you'd never met before on the internet. It was like just wild stuff was happening. Um, and uh, as a result of us spending all of our time there, we were just getting pulled into to conversations all the time. People saying, hey, I remember you guys telling me about Bitcoin five years ago, is it real this time? Should I buy some? should my VC firm be investing in this stuff? Um, And so we were doing a bunch of education. And by the end of 2017, everybody in traditional venture, I think, realized, A, it just moves so quickly. Uh, There's so much happening that it's hard to keep up if you're not full-time on it. And B, structurally, most of the VC firms are not really set up to participate here you have to go register with the sec because you're dealing with liquid assets literally you have custody and so one day a usb key will show up and it has a couple million dollars on it like what do you do with that do you, you give that to your associate and they just keep it at home or like how do, like what do you even do with that right and so you, you know your cfo is is going to have to mark this stuff and send it to your lps and so your your assets are moving 50 percent a quarter like how do you how do your investors even think about that how do you communicate it just like creates all this complexity and so a few people approached us and said hey uh, can we just give you money? Can you can you do what you're doing with your personal money, but can you do it with our money too? And uh, Curtis and I had had both done our first startup in in 2008, and so we lived through that crash. And sort of, you know, rule number one of being a founder is if people show up and just start giving you money, you should just take it because that that indicates both like product market fit, and it also indicates that you you know like you should probably take it because you don't know what's going to happen right around the corner. Um, and so that was sort of like our seed round. So that was our first fund. We we started it in Q1 2018. Um, and I, I sort of describe that as our seed round almost in like um in venture parlance. And then about a year ago, we raised our second fund. Um uh, and that's sort of like our Series A. And and so between the seed and the Series A, I think people have sort of got up to speed on, okay, maybe something is happening here. Um, and the market had sort of started to come back a little bit. Um, and, uh, and so now it's sort of, okay, this thing might work. Uh, that's kind of where we are. And I think that's where most people are in their heads. It's like, okay, I think this is probably real. I don't know how big it gets. I don't know how it scales. I don't know how long it takes to get there. But I think that's kind of in, in like venture speak, we're kind of at like the series A of this industry. Mm. We're still really early days and there's a long way to go. But people who are very forward thinking can sort of see those signals and pattern match to it and say, okay, I think it's real. I think it's not going away. And now it's really a question of how long does it take to, to materialize.
0: I'd love to go just one step one step back sure. and pull on. Um, so to you, it, like it felt like the early days of the internet. Yeah. And you also have these people from all different walks of life who want, to explore and build here, but will you give us some basic framings around what is the promise of crypto or how, um, for some of our listeners might not be as deep in this space, um, like what is Bitcoin in your mind and what is the promise of crypto? And then how do we think about, if you're familiar with crypto and Bitcoin, there's also this whole other world of other tokens and networks. Can you just put, like, give us a basic framing to put that in context?
2: Yeah, happy to. So, I think there are two ways that people think about crypto. There's sort of a top-down way to think about it, and there's a bottoms-up way to think about it. And the the top-down really, I think, appeals to people who have economics backgrounds or finance backgrounds or capital allocators, people who come from that world. And it's sort of a... Um, monetary perspective, or a um, you know seizure-resistant gold, digital gold kind of narrative. Hey, there's a bunch of money printing happening, um, and I think that that you see on Twitter a lot. You see that in the news a lot. People sort of you know on CNBC talking about that version of it. We come at it from a slightly different perspective, which is much more bottoms up. Which is you know we're our, our backgrounds are as engineers and, and builders, and so we look at it as just a different way to build software and. And fundamentally, it makes a very different set of trade offs than internet software. So, the internet was really designed um, or has become, it wasn't originally designed, but it was sort of has become about speed and scalability and throughput. And I think everybody is now starting to realize that what we've done to get those properties is we've traded off our privacy and we've given our data ownership to third parties. And we don't, have any data immutability, like if, if they change the data, the, the data is what, it, what the company says it is. Uh, and, and those were the trade-offs that we made, fundamentally, in, in getting all of these great services. And I think it, at the time it made a lot of sense. Facebook, Google, Twitter, all of these great services, you know, people love them and they use them and they're the biggest companies in the world for a reason, uh, because they offer real utility. But we're now at a stage where people look at those things and say, well, there are consequences to that. Um, and, and maybe I don't want to give up all my privacy, maybe I don't want to give up all my data. And, and and so people are open to that idea now that we've sort of come up the S-curve. And so this software platform just sort of says, well, what if I turn that trade-off on its head? What if I'm not willing to give up my privacy? What if I'm not willing to give up my data? What if I want to own it? What if I don't want you to be able to change my data? Uh, and I'm willing to trade off some speed and scalability and throughput and ease of use, Like, what could I do? Um, and if you sort of approach it from that framing, you say, well, where does that kind of a trade off really make sense? And in our opinion, the place where it makes the most sense is anything that has to deal with money. Because when you're talking about money, you want it done correctly and you're willing to wait a little bit to make sure that it's, it's done correctly. And you probably prefer it to be done privately. Like, you know, People say that privacy doesn't matter, but it's not like everybody's out there putting their, their social security number and their credit card and their bank account information and how much they make publicly on their website. right? People actually, when it comes to finances, care a lot about privacy. Um, and you don't want somebody to be able to just take your money. And so things like data immutability really matter. And so at a really high level, kind of 50,000 foot view, we say, well, this software actually is a great fit for those kinds of problems. And then you say, okay, well, where does it start? And it turns out the first killer app is bitcoin mm. and and bitcoin is is actually a really simple way to think about it is it's a bunch of ones and zeros, and we all decided that those ones and zeros have value now. We all just collectively got together and said that's worth USD, which is kind of a weird thing that we just all collectively decided that that is how we're going to exchange value. but you know it's actually not that different than than fiat money, uh, where we just have these slips of paper. like Have you ever talked to a seven year old? you know they'll they'll like cut up a piece of paper and like put a one on it and they're like here here's some money right because it's kind of true right it's just we all collectively agreed that this piece of paper equals some value and we'll exchange it for goods and services um, it reminds me actually of that, you know, in, in the West, I think, in, in the U.S. in particular, when you have that conversation, it's hard for people to get their heads around that. Um, it's it's kind of, the, I, I always forget which philosopher has this, but it, it, there's this story of like an old fish. Do you know this one? Like the old fish swims by the two young fish. Have you heard this? No. Nah.
0: Is this the David Foster Wallace? This is water?
2: Yeah yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah that's that's exactly right, right? And, and for people who don't know the story, it's, you know, he, he swims by two young fish and says, how's the water today, boys? And the two you know and swims along, and and then the one young fish looks at the other young fish and says what 's water um that's kind of fiat money in the west like we don't we don't really understand it because it's it's always sort of existed and it works. but if you go talk to somebody in Argentina or Brazil or Nigeria, like they really understand it um and, and they've lived through a currency devaluation, and they understand you know this is all sort of made up, um, which is why so many of the early bitcoiners were were from those places actually or or had lived there you know look, look at um Brian Armstrong, for example, he lived in South America. He did he did a, an overseas exchange program, and so I spends- didn't
0: know that actually. Yeah, but although I mean, obviously, like the, the you know the U.S. dollar, and these other currencies are like backed by the U.S. government. I mean, that's obviously a like a huge, um, an important distinction. But there is absolutely there is something about Bitcoin that does feel like a a, a cultural narrative buy in that like a very large number of people around the world wanted to participate in, and that that collective buy-in is what continues to like give the give the network strength. Yeah, that's right. Or dura- durability or or longevity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and so, you know, if you sort of take that as the starting point and you say, okay, well, let's let's just acknowledge that it's a bunch of humans all over the world that said, okay, this thing now has value and we all agree that it has some value and we can transfer it for for US dollars or, or lira or whatever, um, then you say, okay, well, let's let's play that forward and what does that mean? And the first realization is that it is fundamentally different from your bank account because the ones and the zeros are the value, which is different than the ones and the zeros in your bank database, which is a representation of value, which, which is basically an IOU from the bank that says, if you go to the bank, I'll give you fiat dollars, mm. um, which itself is an IOU from the government, and so it's sort of IOUs all the way down. <laughs> right? But, um, but it's, it is a different thing, which is like, in this case, if you have the ones and the zeros, you have the money. Um, and the way that you assert ownership over this bearer instrument is with another set of ones and zeros, which is your private key. Um, And then you sort of say, okay, well, if that's how I assert ownership over these ones and zeros, it's just another set of ones and zeros, couldn't I have a password manager generate that password for me? It's like a very logical thing that a lot of people do now is you just have some sort of password manager and you say, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. Like, that doesn't seem crazy. And then you play that one step forward and you say, well, what if the password manager, which is itself a piece of code, which is just a bunch of ones and zeros, uh, generated the password for me, but it didn't tell me the password. It just kind of kept the password to itself, um, encrypted it so I can't see it. Um, You say, okay, well, that doesn't seem crazy. Like, you write a piece of code that does that. Um, Well, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that the code owns the money. Uh, and that's kind of a mind-blowing concept. Mm. Um, that has like really, really big downstream consequences, in my opinion. And, and I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of that. So I'll give you like a way out there example. Like I am of the opinion that when we have artificial general intelligence, it's not going to interface the, with the real world through some sort of robot body. Like I don't think Terminator happens. I think what happens is AGI can buy stuff in the real world using crypto. And so, what it can do is like make cars move around and pay. <laughs> the
0: AGI is going to be a <laughs>
2: capitalist. That's right, and it's, yeah. you know, right? it can buy electricity, it can buy goods and services, it can pay humans to go around and do stuff. Uh, and so, like, it doesn't need a human form, it doesn't need a body because it can just control things in the real world using money, um, right? And that'll take 25 years, but but it's sort of like I think once you start to think things, these things through, and you're like, holy crap, code can own money. That I think is going to unlock a lot of crazy stuff that we don't even we haven't gotten our heads around yet. But sort of very obviously, step one of that is you start to say, well, where does that actually apply today and what does that mean? And and to us, it's very natural Then you say, well, there's a lot of the world which is just actually here's a set of instructions, you know, wrapping some money. That's a will, that's a trust, that's escrows, that's, um, you know, insurance, that's REITs, that's HELOCs, that's mortgages. That's derivatives, that's securities it's literally hundreds of trillions of dollars of stuff in the world. It's just a pile of money with some rules around it and um, some some instructions written in a legal contract that says, "Hey humans, please do these things like in the future, please do this stuff." Um, and to us, it seems natural that instead of it being a bunch of lawyers writing this stuff down and then humans interpreting it later. It should just be computer programmers writing down the rules, and then the computer just executes it, and it's deterministic, and you know exactly what's going to happen um, because that's literally the one thing that computers are better than humans at is here's a set of instructions, please execute them, and don't deviate from them. That's literally the one thing computers do better than humans. Um, and so to us, it's just natural that over the next twenty years, this just eats up everything that has to do with money. And it all if you if you sort of like walk that back, you're like, oh, that all just derives from, here's a bunch of ones and zeros that we now call money that we call value and you can sort of work your way forward with a, a bunch of really you know simple logical jumps and like i don't think there's anything crazy in that uh, string of logical statements and you get to oh wait this infrastructure is actually a perfect fit for all things related to money and it's just going to eat all of those things up over the next 20 years
1: yeah Avich, i'm so curious what you think about i mean the cost of computing hmm. pretty much everything through this type of framework? Like, you read different things about this having a serious impact on the environment. Do you think that that's real? Is that something that we should be concerned about?
2: Um, the short answer is no. The longer answer is I think um, it's a little nuanced. Um, you know, I think when you're talking specifically about Bitcoin, usually the concern there is around proof of work, which is you have all these computers all over the world uh, computing, um, you know, this hash and the puzzle to the hash, and, and or sorry, the, the solution to the to the puzzle, and you, you can get in the weeds a little bit, but it's basically a bunch of CPUs running that that seem like they're burning a lot of electricity. But when you dig into it a little bit, you know, one way to think about that is, in essence, something like Bitcoin is just a bounty on uh, unproductive uses for electricity. So like you don't see um, you don't see Bitcoin miners in the city of San Francisco. It's not like everybody's running one in their house, and it's because you actually have better things to do with that electricity. You want to you want to watch Netflix. You want to run your computer. You want to heat your home. Like that's that's actually a better use for it, and people are willing to pay a lot more for that. They're willing to pay. 10x what you would pay to mine Bitcoin with that, um, and so in some sense Bitcoin is just sort of this like excess energy bounty, which is why you see Bitcoin miners in like hydroelectric plants or or out in like fracking fields because that's just essentially waste electricity, and you can soak that waste electricity up and convert it into money almost like a money battery, um, uh, and and that's kind of where all the Bitcoin mining happens. It doesn't really happen in like a major metropolis, and it's not really competing for this like more productive use of of um, energy. Um, now you know. 10 years from now, could that be a problem? Maybe. Like maybe Bitcoin is just so valuable that it actually starts to crowd out some more productive use cases, but I don't, I don't think it's a short-term problem. Um, and then there's sort of the more nuanced view, which is actually if that were to ever become a problem, um, you could always just, you know, you could you could change the protocol, you could evolve it. And and there are new forms of um, securing these networks, which are much, much more energy efficient.
0: Move away from like proof of work and something that's less.
2: Yeah, or, or even even different forms of proof of work. So there, there are uh, new things like proof of space time, which would let you use hard drive space instead of a CPU to secure the network. And in, in essence, still... run the same underlying lottery um, that that a proof of work CPU based system lets you do. And so there are things like Chia or Space Mesh which just use hard drive space and a solid state hard drive is orders of you know magnitude more efficient uh, from a power perspective um, and those things are just starting to hit market like this year um, and so it's still proof of work it's still backed by physical resources there's there are a lot of reasons to think that proof of work might actually be how you need to secure these things um, but it has a lot of other really nice properties like anybody can can run a hard drive and there's a lot of excess hard drive capacity in the world and you could never corner the hard drive space in the world you couldn't own 60% of it it's just too distributed and all the manufacturing and and supply chains are you know reasonably distributed there's like Western digital and Samsung and like a lot of that infrastructure already exists that you can sit on top of. So it may not even have to be proof of stake. You might have sort of useless proof of work that is you know, uh, 10,000 times more energy efficient and, and will scale beautifully uh, through something like hard drives.
0: So one thing that <laughs> this conversation was reminding me where I started, which is, Crypto is just so vast that trying to keep up with all these different layers and nuances. And um, there's one part of the conversation is about what are the externalities. And to Jana's point, what are some of maybe the unintended consequences? Then there's a whole technical conversation, which you're kind of diving into, which is the different breakthroughs in computer science or approaches to actually, you know, building these networks and securing these networks. There's another element um, which has always captivated me. And it's probably where my interest came in terms of crypto, which is about ownership, Mm. who gets to own the network, who gets to own and financially benefit or actually vote and shape a network as it scales. And so a part of the conversation that like for me clicked years ago, um, was actually Chris Dixon had written a piece Mm. about app tokens as like a breakthrough in, in, in network design. And, uh, he articulated the promise of crypto networks as being a sort of uh, I think he uses the term, the spiritual heir to the open source software movement. Yeah. Where if you have a group of people all over the world is contributing code and technically contributing to a network, is there some like crypto, the promise of crypto is that they could each be owners in the network. And then people that join early and decide to become early users of a network could also become owners. And for me, the reason this clicked was, as you look at all of the major marketplace businesses and consumer networks and conversations around the social networks right now, one, who gets to own them? Two, who gets to make the decisions about how they're governed, what content's allowed on the network? Um, you know, Do the folks who work at headquarters versus the contract workforces that work to build some of these these bigger networks before they go public, who actually benefits... When, when the company um, uh, creates a lot of value. And in general, in Silicon Valley, we operate with ec- like a cap table that is owned by the founders, the investors, the full-time employees, and that's concentrated in a certain group. But we actually didn't have a mechanism or at least we have not popularized one yet to give ownership to a whole lot more people. And we're actually starting to make inroads in this in terms of the way who's given access to the investing opportunities. But anyway, for me, it was like a breakthrough moment to think, wait, with crypto companies, early people creating the network and the protocol are going to own it. But then they're going to carve out the equivalent of like an like an ESOP pool, an employee stock option pool, but it's way, way, way bigger. And they're going to give it to all the early people that come on and start using the network. And it just, it shapes the ownership conversation totally differently. Um, And so for me, that was the, like, everybody's entry point into crypto. I feel like could be something different. (laughs) Like maybe you're into crypto art. We'll talk about NFTs. But for me, that ownership piece just held so much promise um, and excitement.
2: Yeah, I really agree. And I think it's it's it, it touches on a lot of other societal questions about how does wealth work and how does wealth inequality play out and why don't the first thousand Uber drivers that really made Uber work get to participate in more of the upside? There's sort of like a, a sense of fairness there, which is like they actually were really instrumental in making that thing work. Um, it touches on on elements from the developer community of open source. And wait a second, the entire internet is built on open source, but all of the value is captured by not open source companies. Um, it's captured by people in higher, higher in the stack. And so um, Curtis, um, my co-founder at Electric, talks about how um, you know open source was sort of revenge of the nerds. And it was sort of like, we're going to open this up and blow this thing up and, and, and make the internet work. And crypto is sort of revenge of the super nerds which is like we almost got there and now everybody that was you know the, the uh, cypherpunks and, and the phone freaks and you know uh, the free and open source movement, all these people that have been thinking about these things actually the, like the philosophical roots of a lot of this stuff go back 30, 40 years um, And all of those types of people and many of them actually are still around folks like you know Zuko, and Zcash or uh, Bram Cohen at uh, from BitTorrent, you know, who's doing Chia. Um, the philosophical roots are the same, and and it gets back at this idea of like, why do the big companies get to take all the money? Why do they get to take all the value? Why do they get to have all the control? Um, when it's all of these individuals that are actually making this whole thing work, and why shouldn't they get uh, the bulk of the economic upside? And and with crypto tokens, you can now actually make that happen. You can actually reward people on micro scale. You can reward them and incentivize certain behaviors. Um, you can make it in some sense more fair because. Anybody can come in and participate, and and the people that participate the most and create the most value can be rewarded for it. Um, Now, I think you know that the 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 flip side of that is it's somewhat idealistic because we don't really understand how that thing scales. I think it's fascinating, it's interesting, um, you know, uh, like the idea of a scaled co op almost, Mm -hmm. where everybody is Mm -hmm. is an equal party, and and whoever you know sort of can convince everybody else gets to participate, or somewhat feels somehow more democratic almost, which is. You know everybody's on equal footing, and if you can convince a bunch of other people to come along with you and vote the way that you vote, then then you get to accrue influence. Um, but I'm sure there're going to be downsides. You know the second and third order effects of these things take take time to play out, and so I'm sure there're going to be interesting consequences that that we see happen. But the promise of it or the idea of it, I think, is is has has captured a lot of people's attention and imagination for, exactly for all these reasons. And I think, the, in my opinion, the you know crypto. Um, to maybe take it back to like 50,000 foot view, you know, to me it, it is this secular cultural movement just manifesting through technology. And I, and that, so I think things like wealth inequality or the lack of trust in institutions is sort of, you know, this is the developers all saying, we feel that too and we're going to take the tools at our disposal to try to fix it. So, you know, if you go back to like the, the Bitcoin white paper and, and read Satoshi's, um, you know motivations for doing this, um, or or the the you know the genesis block of Bitcoin that has um, you know a Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks as sort of like the the rallying cry. There's a political message in Bitcoin, right? And so I think the roots of all of this stuff actually are, are in things like wait the system feels like it's broken and how do we fix the system more fundamentally? Um, and I think that that is for a lot of people is like the jumping off point. They're like oh I get that that makes sense to me, um, and then and then because it has that philosophical appeal, you sort of get pulled down the rabbit hole.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Avichal, I'm so curious. I mean, so you know, you're now five, six years into investing in the crypto space. How do you think about segmenting the industry, and which areas are you paying a lot of attention to right now?
2: Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I would say we've gone through. Well, one one general rule of thumb, I think, with crypto is like the third time around is when things really stick. So the first <laughs> the first time around it's sort of the idea and the early adopters the fringe people sort of get their heads around something being technically possible. I call, I kind of call that, you know, in, in the um, was it Jeffrey Moore is crossing the chasm? I always forget, I think it's Jeffrey Moore. Gordon Moore is the Intel guy, right? So Jeffrey Moore. Um, There's sort of the crossing the chasm moment. And I think in in venture land, we kind of call that the Netscape moment. It's like the moment that something goes mainstream. And so I would argue sort of the Netscape moment for crypto was roughly 2020. Was Bitcoin went from being uh, contrarian to being consensus, Mm. I think, and basically in 2020, um, which is effectively sort of like the third time around, like 2013, 2017, uh, 2020. Um, But I think there's a moment before that which is which is the Rubicon moment, as I call it, which is the moment that something goes from being technically possible to the earliest of the early adopters saying, "I want this, and I'm going to bring it into, into existence." Um, and for me, I think that was that was somewhere you know for Bitcoin, was roughly 2008. But you might argue it was more like 2011. That's sort of like it, it became you know much more much more mainstream. It went from just being a, a small number of people to okay, maybe this thing, the early adopters are here, um, and so. We're sort of, you know, as as venture investors, we're simultaneously paying attention to the Netscape moments and we're paying attention to the Rubicon moments because the Rubicon moments will take seven to ten years to play out. Um, and so, you know, in like 20, 2017, I think it was really about layer ones. It was that that was sort of the moment of, hey, this is this is starting to happen, and everything that's not Bitcoin is is going through this moment. Um, and today, we're we're starting to look at things like DeFi. Um, I think is is sort of you know is going through its second wave. I think the first wave was effectively two or three years ago. So this wave of DeFi we think is really interesting because it's proving out the primitives.
0: Can you explain DeFi? We just give a little primer.
2: Yeah, it's decentralized finance, and and it's basically this idea of recreating the fundamental financial primitives entirely on a blockchain. And so the the basic ideas of things like lending, collateral, margin, leverage. Um, you know, hedge funds, just like all of these basic things that exist in the financial ecosystem and just creating them in smart contracts. Um, sort of that idea of if everything that exists, you know, these hundreds of trillions of dollars of value um, exists as legal code, just recreate them as a smart contract. And, and people are sort of doing that and creating an entirely digital economy that sits on chains like Ethereum. Um, and and these fundamental primitives, then you know the reason they're so powerful is they're composable. So you can you can mash them together because it's all just APIs and code. You start mashing them to, together to make even more complex instruments or complex um, financial products. Um, and in many parts of the world, it's it's really interesting because in in, in a lot of parts of the world. Those sorts of things don't even exist, right? So it's, it's kind of like mobile, where I think right now you're in the early stages of mobile, where um, you have a bunch of wealthy people, the crypto rich that got there early, um, or the or the people who have a lot of discretionary income are sort of playing there, um, and you can see the promise of it in in the emerging markets because in a lot of those places these things just don't exist. Like you may have a lot of people who are unbanked, and ultimately I think that's where this has the biggest impact. In the same way that mobile had the biggest impact in the emerging world, but we're still kind of in the early days where actually you need to bootstrap it, and so the wealthy people are sort of. Primarily, the ones we're playing, but we were starting to create all of these basic primitives in DeFi, and and these ideas have been around for a while, right? If you look at the Ethereum white paper, um, it talks about a lot of these things, things like escrow and insurance, um, and so there's sort of like a first wave of that in in you know like 2017, 2018, where people started to play around with these things and it was sort of technically possible to do it, but, it, but you weren't quite ready for it. And then I think the 2020 wave was kind of the second wave, which was oh, it's actually possible, and and people actually kind of want it, um, but kind of like the 2017 ICO, boom, it's just too early, right? And so I think we're, we're starting to get a little bit over our skis on on DeFi. Um, it's just if you look at the valuations of these tokens and, and kind of how much cash you could actually come, you know, from a cash flow perspective, if you look at um, how much money you can pull out of these protocols, it, the, the numbers kind of don't make sense right now, in our opinion. Um, but the utility is real. And so what we expect will happen is things will just get over their skis again, as they, as they do, uh, and then it'll correct and it'll overcorrect. And then that third time around is where you really want to pay attention to it, just in, in the same way that you know, post-2017 was really when you wanted to pay attention to Bitcoin. Um, it got over its skis, and then actually after it got to 20 k and then crashed, that was actually the time to be buying, because that's when you sort of knew that it, it was going to cross the chasm. And so in, in our opinion, DeFi um, going into like 2022, 2023 is the point it starts to cross the chasm, but probably people will get really down on it over the next 12 to 18 months, um, because it's just a little too early and expectations are a little too high. NFTs we think are similar. Like there was a wave of NFTs back in 2017 with with CryptoKitties and Dapper Labs, and they proved that the the, that there was some demand for this. And now you're seeing kind of the second wave of it with things like NBA Top Shot, which are you know digital collectible trading cards, basically with with video, Um, and and people are paying hundreds of millions of dollars for this stuff now um, on chain. It's it's I mean the stats are mind blowing. um, How much money people are paying for this stuff. But again, probably in our opinion, it'll get over its skis. You know, we just had this like Christie's Beeple auction for 70 million dollars. Their are artists they are, you know, making tens of millions of dollars selling uh selling their music. It's just it's it's really crazy what's happening right now. Um, and we think it probably gets over its skis.
0: I'd love to talk about this for a sec, because it's also um sure. this is where crypto intersects with like art and entertainment culture and just there's yeah. there's just so many different things intersecting here. But many people probably saw the headlines around Um, Beeple's um everyday's artwork being sold at Christie's for about sixty nine or seventy million dollars, um. And one thing I did was when I saw that headline was just like go a little bit deeper on like who is Beeple and like you know what is going on here. But there are some people in this community are just like absolutely fascinating. So what I learned about him. Number one, that piece of art he started making in 2007. So for 13 years, he has been creating... Digital art every single day and compiled yeah, it's it remarkable. into this piece. So it's crazy. So I think one one take might be, oh, this is just opportunistic, get rich quick. It is literally the opposite of that. This is someone who spent over a decade with a daily practice to create a work of art, um, and I just like didn't appreciate that on the surface of just reading the headlines. And second, he has a computer science degree. He worked as a web developer, but was always doing art on the side. Um, and just the more I I read, I thought, you know, I always look to me that just that feels like a bit of the future, like folks who are both yeah. technical and builders, but creative, and it kind of comes together. And then uh, there was a there's a clubhouse chat. I think you were you were maybe even on stage mm-hmm. right? where the yeah. folks that purchased the work were being um, were yeah, discussing and, and yeah, like and, and remarkably, number one, they they're pseudonymous pseudonymous <laughs> pseudonymous, um, which again, you like that's a notion that we know is uh, we talk about that as a part of the crypto community, or you see that with like younger communities as well. Um, yeah. but they both, um, uh, were outside the United States, so it's like a very global community. Uh, but also for them, part of it was about wanting to patronize and be a patron of the arts. And, um, to them, like, I they talk about like the the wealth transfer of. Folks like them didn't always have access to wealth, but now because of crypto, they do and they get to fund the things that they want to see in the world. Um, and so for me, all of that was fascinating, yeah. which was which is just to say, like, it's the signals for me that's like, I just want to keep learning and like not run yeah. away, but like run towards trying to understand what's going on here.
2: Yeah, I thought that was actually a, that was a seminal moment in the history of the internet, in my opinion, because what you had was a was somebody who made their wealth entirely digitally. It was entirely digital money that that sort of fueled that. It was bought entirely pseudonymously, so you know people didn't know who this person was, and then the first conversation that they had to talk about what why they did what they did was on an internet native platform. They went to clubhouse and had a conversation with Shri Ram and Arthi and, and, Steve Sanofsky and a folk, you know, a bunch of other NFT artists. And, um, instead of going to like Oprah or something, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, you know, the the royals sort of conversation was happening at the same time, right? Like um, Prince Harry and Meghan like that conversation was happening in peril and it was such a contrast, it was such a fascinating juxtaposition in my opinion of like the old world and the new world, right? Like the the royal family going on (laughs) Oprah and like pseudonymous crypto rich people going on Clubhouse. And I was like, this is like, you could not have a more stark, like here is the past and here is the future. Uh, And I think people will look back on that and be like, oh, I think that might be the moment where everybody realized like, the metaverse is going to happen. Uh, like digital money is real. And it, like those people are going to have a lot of power and influence. And like these platforms, like the internet has actually taken over. Like the internet is the primary channel now, um, which I think also touches on this idea of like, why are the artists even here? Right, like why are the creators even interested in this? And I think it gets to this idea of like in the modern world, the creators are the small business, right? If you're eighteen today, you don't you don't wanna open a cafe, you don't wanna open like a studio, you know, you wanna be a YouTube star, you wanna be on TikTok, you wanna have your own channel. And then you walk through that and you're like, Okay, well that's a business. And so you start thinking about the risks to your business and you realize that your, your existential risk is that the platforms can shut you off. Like YouTube can boot you, they can demonetize you, and what do you do about it? There's actually nothing you can do about it. And then actually everybody could act in unison because if everybody decides to act in unison, very quickly you realize, wait a second, Like if I can't send email, if I don't show up in search results, I'm not on YouTube, I can't tweet, I can't use Facebook, Amazon won't let me on their web services, Microsoft won't let me on their web services, Like, do you even exist? In in a modern world where the internet is the primary channel, as we just discussed, right, you know, going on Clubhouse instead of going on Oprah, like, do you even exist as a business? You kind of don't. And so, if your entire existence is online, if you're a creator, that is an existential threat to who you are and your business. And so, all of a sudden, I think people have woken up to the idea that these are existential problems when it comes to their livelihood. And therefore, there is this demand side energy to, to pursue these platforms, which allow them to have direct relationships with their fans. And so, to me, like, the NFT stuff, is really fascinating because for the first time, it's actually demand side. It's actually people that, you know, that the creators are here. It's not just that it's technically possible and we're like, hey, developers will create it and then users will come. You actually now have a population of people that will bring their fans. And so the demand side of the marketplace can actually get off the ground. Um, but to me it's all about the the like we've the internet has actually taken over. Like the internet is now the primary thing. The internet is not the secondary thing anymore. Like the business businesses think about the internet first, um and, and physical second. And I think that's like that's a pretty marked shift from from even I would say five years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we sometimes talk about a generation um that's like crypto native. Yeah really like coming of age right now. I think the other um the other thing I wonder, which perhaps, you know, to your point, maybe there's, for some folks, it's top of mind about the risk of being deplatformed. But I think the other angle where I've spent some time thinking about it is maybe for some folks, it it actually is just about, well, obviously I would do this on crypto. Like it's al- it's almost just the presumption because they're crypto native. Yeah. So as an example, um, uh, you know, some of the conversations I followed around people's work and then just reading and listening to podcasts about, there are artists that talked about, well, yeah, for the last like 10 years, I've been putting stuff up on Instagram and I get likes, but I can't make a living like this. And now, you know, you can own and, um, and benefit and sell and make money from your, your work. And I think that's appealing. I think, um, the other, um, Oh, the other thing I started to notice—these are like the little internet signals. I, I always try to like yeah. pull on the thread when I see it—is yeah. um, some creative entrepreneurs I follow have started switching all their handles and their their bios to ETH addresses, and yeah. then to like Foundation Zora and other um, other links, which um, which are which are basically places to, to display their work. Yeah. Um, to me, that's interesting because it gets at an identity. Like, hey, this is my Twitter profile and this is how I want, when people see me and they want to click to learn more, I want to represent myself as, you know, my portfolio of work on foundation. Um, And I started to see that once and I saw it several times and then I started following, then I got hooked on this whole CryptoPunk thing with (laughs) with Dylan from Figma, which we should talk about. And then I started following a bunch of other folks, um, like Perugia and then... Then, then my follower suggestions all ended up being people with cryptopunk yeah. avatars, so then I'm just, I'm just like deep
2: in it. yeah, you're down the rabbit hole yeah
0: but we should let's let's touch on the the um cryptopunk Dylan um piece because I think that 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 felt, crossed a lot of altitudes in terms of like a um yeah you know, what that meant for the crypto and, and art sort of intersection.
2: Yeah, and, and I so I think the the quick backstory on that is um, uh, Dylan Feld, who's the founder, co-founder, and CEO of Figma, which is a design tool that that a lot of people use now and is, is a fantastic product. Um, it also owns a, a bunch of crypto punks and, and NFT art, and. Um, and you know he, he he gave this great speech that uh, is up on the internet. You can find it um, about why he bought the the CryptoPunks that he did. And it was it was a it was a great. It really touches on I think I, what you're talking about in this idea of expression and identity and people sort of looking at these pieces of art not just as pixels but sort of an expression of who they are. Um, and that carries a lot of meaning, right? That carries value to them. And so it's it's not even about um, how much did I pay for it? It's, it's sort of the irrational, what does this mean for me? And how does this express who I am? Um, and being able to display that in a place um, like a, a wallet or on Zora or a foundation, um, that's, just, that's such a common, that's like a fundamental human thing. It's just this idea of self-expression to say, here's who I am and here's how I'm different from everybody else and here's what makes me unique. Um, but it's now natively tied with money, and so now you can actually, you know, you can sort of move money along those same protocols. And so it's very natural for people to be able to monetize that um, and, and tie those things together. I mean, you see, you see in the offline world too, right? You see it with things like sneakerheads. the idea is like it's an expression of who you are. It's an expression of art. It's an expression of beauty. Uh, and there's real money involved, um, and 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 there's social signaling involved with the money as well. And that's all sort of tied you know tied together. Um, and this is just the digital version of that. But it's it, you know humans have been doing this for since the beginning. We're just We're just primates that really like shiny things, and this is just like the digital version of that. And and I think to your point, there's an entire generation of people. You know, if you're born in the year 2000, you're 21 now. You know, it's it's like there are people that that don't know a world pre-internet, and their first memories. And I don't I don't remember that much stuff before I was like seven. You know, so their their first memories are like the iPhone existing, right? So it's just an entire generation of people for whom. You know, digital versions of sneakers or digital versions of art is, of course, that's of course that that's why would it be any other way, right? Your entire life is digital, Um, and so I think you're right. There's this entire generation of people that are truly digital native. That would it just like the analog world is the thing you have to explain to them, Mm -hmm. right? It's just like the digital world Mm -hmm. is the one that they grew up in, and so of course it's natural. Um, And I mean, that's that's the other thing here is it's just that's that's where when you start like interacting with those people, it's really crazy. We have these conversations with people on Twitter. We were just talking to a 14 year old NFT artist. And and the way that she, and, and she sold her art for, you know, 10, 20 ETH at a time, which is, you know, when you're 14, thousands of dollars, right? It's like tens of thousands of dollars, um, which is, to me, it just reminds me of like when I was a kid, it was, you know, like writing mobile apps or... Or making websites is sort of like the modern equivalent of that, and and so that world feels so native to me. It's just like mobile and internet just makes so much sense to me that I, that I have to imagine for these kids that are growing up and you're 14 and 15 and making NFT art, crypto is just going to be second nature, and and that almost makes it feel inevitable. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just like there's not these people yeah. are just it's just part of their DNA now.
1: So Avicii, you mentioned that you think NFTs are on phase two. Yeah. So, what do you think needs to happen for it to move to phase three, which is more the kind of like mainstream, like final frontier?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of infrastructure and tooling that needs to be built. So, Mm -hmm. it's still kind of hard to create this stuff. It's still kind of hard to find it, to search over it, to catalog it. Uh, You know, when you get into the technical details and the specifics of it, there's a lot of stuff like, well, where does the image actually sit? And when you look in in you know the the actual NFT contracts and the metadata and where it points, um, a lot of times it will point to some metadata server that's controlled by some company. And so in theory, the company could just swap out with the images, um, right? And so there are a lot of questions I think around how, how do you actually like make these things realize the full promise of what they are. Um, you know i think the brands need to show up i think you know one day pokemon and harry potter and like you know marvel all these people will show up and, and all of a sudden you know it'll be really really mainstream
1: i think i think taco bell showed up a few weeks ago taco bell <laughs> showed up
2: yeah it's funny taco bell and domino's are like very early adopters in general of technology they're they're fantastic i don't know who you know
1: although you
0: have to imagine like every i just i imagine every major corporate brand has got a meeting somewhere, which is like what are nfts like how
2: yeah, right.
0: like, should we get into this you know um, yeah, or like right. the same way like totally once right. Tesla moved some currency into Bitcoin I'm sure there's there's a group of folks I'm sure it, a bunch of companies that are like, what did they just do? Should we be doing this, so who knows? maybe we're not maybe we're not that far, who knows,
2: yeah, totally. um, but yeah, I think I think it's sort of this this is the time where we can see the promise, maybe maybe a short answer to your question, Jenna, is like I think this is the point at which you can see the promise of all of these things. But there's going to be a little bit of a lag before we can realize the promise of it. It'll take a couple of years for Disney to show up. It'll take a couple of years for Marvel and Pokemon and all of those things to show up. And and now that they're interested because they can see it, they saw things like NBA Top Shot. Now they're going to start investing. But it just takes two years to build this stuff out. You know, like to actually build it and get it out in the hands of normal people and fix the UI and make sure that the wallets are good and that this stuff is scalable, um, and that the banks, you know, and the credit card companies don't stop the transactions from going in. There's just all of these points of friction. And despite that, you have hundreds of millions of dollars going into it. And so, when you fix all those points of friction, is when you can start getting into the billions. And once you start getting into the billions, it, you know, you just the flywheel kicks in. Um, and so, it's just a lot of little points of friction. I don't think there's like one thing in particular, but it's just you can see that the infrastructure is being strained in the same way that that yeah. Ethereum was being strained in 2017 or Bitcoin is being strained in 2017. You can just sort of see the infrastructure. Can't keep up right now, and then it'll take two or three years of investment for the infrastructure to catch up. By which point, it's ready, and then when it happens again, um, it can it can actually scale with the infrastructure.
1: Do you think that there are certain verticals that'll move NFTs forward? Like my hypothesis would be, I think that um, gaming yeah. is going to be like one of like the big step functions of once you have like a really incredible incredibly compelling game that, um, has NFTs as status symbols and things kind of like what Fortnite has done. Like, I think that's going to just drive like massive consumer adoption, um, that we haven't seen yet.
0: Well, I mean, Sora would be a candidate there, which is a a company based in Paris that does like fantasy football based trading cards, Mm. um, that are NFTs. Um, yeah. Anyway, that is a potential candidate as an example. Yeah.
2: I agree. I, th- I think there are there are three candidates um, that I have top of mind. So so one of them I think is absolutely some sort of video game uh, ecosystem. Uh, you know, it's it's all that's already a multi billion dollar economy of people, you know, buying and selling skins and so on. So that it feels really natural for that to move into these kinds of platforms. Um, Jessica, I think you're right. The, the second is essentially collectibles, and just taking—I mean, you know, it, people have been doing this for generations and generations. The idea of, of physical analog collectibles, whether it's Pokemon cards or basketball cards or whatever, and just the, the digital version of that is going to happen. And the, the third area where we're paying a lot of attention is digital music, yep. um, because I think there's this move from from the musicians to say one of the industries that is still sort of this oligopoly, and, and a small number of people control all the money, and the artists don't um is music. And so folks like uh, Justin Blau, who's a digital DJ, um you know, he's he's been thinking about this stuff for for several years and and did a lot of really forward-thinking things like owning his own masters and and going independent and not selling them. And 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 now he's doing really interesting and clever things like selling um unreleased music. And you as the NFT owner are the only person that could listen to it. Um and if you want to share it with the world, great. But if not, you're the only person who gets access to it. So he's essentially like selling each piece of music. But I think it opens up a lot of questions uh, in, in the music world, for example. Like, could a bunch of, you know, there's this stuff with Taylor Swift, um, you know, over the last few years of who owns her music. And, and there's a sort of, you know, she, she basically doesn't. Um, and now that some of those IP rights are expiring, she's re recording her music and calling it Taylor's version, which is a kind of an interesting sort of protest. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, imagine the thought process of, I think that that collection of her music is roughly worth $500 million, let's say. Um but is it so crazy for a million Taylor Swift fans to get together and put $500 each down? That's like, you know, two concert tickets. Um and put five hundred dollars down, and to buy back the music, and now all the fans own the music. And crypto actually makes that possible. Like you, you could actually issue that, and, and you can actually have the royalties flow to those people. So not only have you sort of done the thing that emotionally you're like, I want to own. I just love Taylor Swift. I want to own some you know some small piece of her music because it's a representation of who I am, and I want to put it up on my my foundation or you know I want to put it up on these places where I represent my identity. But it, but it's actually a financial instrument too. Right, so I actually get some cash flow out of it, um, and so it opens up a lot of interesting questions about like how the financing of this stuff is going to happen. And I think there's some really, really interesting experiments that are going to happen on the on the digital music side too, because music consumption is 100% digital at this point. Um, so it's kind of at the intersection of I think these things that have gone 100% digital, like video games, like you were saying, Jenna, mm-hmm. um, with the place where there's a desire for fans to have a direct relationship, and it's a, it's a form of self-expression and identity. Like gamers think of themselves as you know that's their identity, you know, musicians and people who listen to certain kinds of music, it's their identity. I think that combination is a really potent combination.
0: I like the Taylor example too, because it obviously hasn't manifested yet, but it is to me, it was the thing that got me excited about this, which is it's that promise that maybe in the future, the creators and their early community actually get to own the things. And, um, and then you're seeing now with like, what's going on with, Robinhood and retail investors and just more participation and then people also want to represent what they own. So I don't know, it just, it all intersects with this like crazy amalgamation of things that are in crypto. Yeah.
2: Um, it's really amazing. I've
0: got maybe one question to wrap us up for folks that are, um, that are new, that are curious, but have not, you know, left their jobs to go do crypto full time or, um, uh, yeah, are just here to getting started. Are there, um, Good starting places, or things that you feel like are good resources, or people to follow, um, that you think provide a good entry point.
2: Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um- a lot of this activity is happening in Twitter and Telegram and Discord. Um, it's very bottoms up. It's it's by its nature very distributed, perhaps fittingly. It's, it's just sort of all <laughs> over the place. So there are not that many great places where it's like, oh, here's the 101, go read this. I mean, folks like Linda She from Scalar Capital have put together some great resources, or um, there's a site called shee256.org, um, which has a, a, like a getting started guide. So there are some getting started guides out there, and they'll, they'll kind of get you the basics, But really, to kind of because it's to your point earlier, I think it's moving so quickly. The best thing to do is to go to Twitter, follow um, folks that are in the space. uh, Myself, Chris Dixon, Katie Hahn, uh, you know, uh, Fred Airson, who's the founder of Coinbase and uh, now Paradigm. They're a bunch of great folks. When you follow, and then the things that they retweet, just pay attention to, and and then kind of use that as a as a as a recursive search. And so whenever they retweet something, look at that person and say, who is this person, and do I want to follow them? And and over a period of a couple of weeks. Your feed will just become all of these things, and then, in real time, you're getting up to speed and I think one of the coolest things about this whole space is we're all sort of figuring it out together. It's not like anybody actually knows the answer uh and so there's this process of discovery that's really it's pretty amazing because you know, in a couple of months, not you're not talking years, you're literally talking three to six months if you if you have dedicated effort, you become the world expert at it like there there are not that many people thinking about a lot of these problems and so there might only be five people who have thought about it that's how new this stuff is um and so that's part of why there isn't there aren't that many great resources like once you get beyond the basics kind of like you get up to speed and you go down the rabbit hole in some direction and then actually in like six months you might actually be the world expert on something um which is why i think it's such an exciting space to be in
0: right on (laughs) visual, we could, this could be a 10 part series. I feel like we've touched on, you know what I mean? <laughs> we've touched on like a handful of different things, each of which could be their own, their own whole yeah, section. Totally. But um, maybe a final thing. We like to wrap up and just do a quick shout out to somebody, um, somebody you learned from, somebody, it could be like an interesting conversation you had this week, or it could have been somebody you met five years ago, which inspired you to go into crypto, but just hmm. um, kind of shine a light. And I know we didn't like, let you prepare, so we'll give you a second. But um, uh while you think about that, I will just – I'm going to double plug Katie Hahn, who you mentioned. But Katie is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. She has um, – and she co-runs the Crypto Fund with Chris Dixon and others and is really actively investing. But her background is actually as a federal prosecutor. Um, she came up through the the legal ranks. And so she brings a different perspective in terms of governance and – Uh, thinking about how to mature crypto companies within the constraints of, um, uh, you know, regulated environments. And I've appreciated learning from her and also just been inspired seeing her um, play such an active role um, funding and and backing a bunch of crypto
2: companies. Yeah, she's fantastic.
1: Yes. And she's also a long, long time um, board member of Coinbase as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um extremely thoughtful and yeah, it's a it's a unique and much needed perspective I think in crypto too. Um because she understands all the regulatory and and she's also very forward thinking and so she understands why this stuff like it's you know too often, I think people from from that universe start from a, a defensive place. They're like, "Oh no, look at all the things that are that are bad with this." And I think she's she's um, really unique in her understanding of the regulatory and and all of you know the government and kind of how that world works. But is still very forward thinking about it and sees the promise of the technology. It's a pretty unique combination, I think. Um, yeah, she's fantastic. Everybody should, everybody should follow her on Twitter. Um, well, you know, I, I'll give a, I'll give a shout out actually to Chris, who's um, her partner at at 16s z in crypto. He um, he was one of the first people to encourage us to actually do Electric, um, and he's been a long, long time supporter behind the scenes. Um, he and and Mark, Mark Andreessen has actually been very, very supportive as well. Um, they have um, they have opened many, many, many doors for us, and, and Electric wouldn't exist if it weren't for Chris and Mark helping us along in the early days. And um, Uh, In in ways that they they frankly didn't have to, and so um, you know they're both uh, extremely successful and and well regarded, and have tons of reach, and and are very wealthy. And so I I actually think we probably won't be able to pay them back in any way. But but uh, I've had conversations with them, and I've said you know we'll we'll do our best to pay it forward. But yeah, I think electric wouldn't exist if it weren't for Chris and Mark helping us along in the early days.
0: Right on. well, thank you, Avichal. This is awesome. I, we could go forever, but I think we've covered a lot. And um, hopefully this will be the first of many conversations. And I have no doubt we're going to continue to intersect on so many different things. So thank you for um, thanks for joining us and hanging out and, and chatting crypto.
2: Yeah, it was great to see you both. Thank you for the time. Good to see you.
0: That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. To keep up with Avichal, you can follow him on Twitter, at Avichal. Next up on the pod, we sit down with Adrian Aoun, CEO and co-founder of Forward Health, a tech-centric healthcare company we've backed at Hashtag Angels. If you're enjoying the pod, please leave us a rating or a review. It really helps people discover us. The Hashtag Angels podcast is a production of H Industries. The episode was produced and edited by Matt Herrero, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.